Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me on the Slice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Joining me today are the co-founders of Arise. Uh, we have Amanda, uh, I'm going to probably mess this up even though you told me it, uh, D'Ambra? D'Ambra? Yeah, okay. D'Ambra. <sighs> Love it. And uh, uh, Joan Zhang. Did I get that one right too? Perfect. I always awesome. say Joan Zhang, but Joan Zong is probably more accurate. Anywhere, anything works. That's why I have to ask, and that's why I put this on the record. I don't want people thinking that, you know, we got this clean on the first take. We have to let them know that I messed up the name. That is totally fine. I own it. Um, it's, it's super excited to have both of you on here today. Would love to kick things off. You know, feel free. Either of you um, want to start with your background, and then we'll go and do an overview of Arise. Yeah, absolutely. So for both Joan and myself, uh, Starting Arise came out of our own really deep experiences with eating disorders and mental health ourselves. Um, just share a little bit about my background. Um, I, you know, first I like to always recognize that I come from a lot of privilege and um, also represent the stereotypes of what eating disorders look like, which is very incorrect and harmful. And so, you know, my experiences with care um, certainly ground me in this work and also what we're building is so much beyond our own experiences so we can meet the needs of so many different people of different identities and backgrounds. Anyway, with, with that in mind, um, just to share a bit of my background, um, I was first diagnosed with OCD when I was 12, and since then I've lived with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and the intersect of it all, um, with eating disorders being really the hardest part to dig out of. Um, I experienced that in my high school years, again, later in my 20s for about five years, was really deep in it again. Um, and, you know, there's just so much that, that comes from these experiences, um, and, you know, Joan and I just came together just with such different experiences and really aiming to build something that was going to deliver more comprehensive care and really build a more equitable and inclusive model for eating disorders because of the differences in these experiences. Yeah, and similar to Amanda, my personal lived experience also very much informed my professional work as well. Um, for me, story is a little bit different and path is a little bit different. I um, developed an eating disorder my freshman year of college, stemmed from a lot of family trauma, a lot of a lot of stuff that happened before that. But uh, mental health was just not talked about in my family. And to, to frankly, just there was no language around mental health, let alone eating disorders. Um, so when things really kind of came to a turning point my freshman year, the way that I recognized it was I couldn't focus on anything else. I couldn't I, I couldn't absorb anything I was learning in my classes. Um, and there was just this overwhelming sense of hopelessness of well, what is the point of life? If if every day I'm consumed by these thoughts, I can't do anything else. It feels like my values are completely misaligned with who I am now. Um, and, and that really was for me the turning point. And I think I'm, I'm grateful that my parents recognized that, um, called me home in the middle of the semester and we just talked it through. And their advice was go back to school and go find a doctor. Didn't know what a therapist was, um, didn't have really any understanding of what the mental health landscape looked like. Um, and I was grateful that I, I had access to providers on campus, had insurance, um, and was able to get that first step of, of getting care, um, working with a therapist. Um, and then even in my own experience, I, I recognized that there were a lot of gaps still. I, there was, it was really difficult to go to a campus hospital um, every, every day, effectively, for the early part. And 
um, sit in a waiting room with all of my peers and feeling like everyone knows that there's something wrong with me. Um, and it was, it felt like another class. I mean, every day I was having to go to this hospital to seek different providers. Um, so that really like, I think contributes to a lot of my first foray into wanting to work and change this space because I recognize for all of my privileges, there were also a lot of ways that the healthcare system failed me and, and in many ways prevented me from seeking longer term support and getting better sooner. Um, so professionally have been working in the product space, um, been a product leader at several different mental health tech companies, started my career at Lantern and then did a stint in management consulting, building EHRs, um, and then later moved to a prescription digital therapeutics company called Click Therapeutics, led the launch of their first clinical trial product. And then later I moved to Ginger and um, that merged with Headspace Health and was part of the awesome team there. Yeah. So between us, a lot of learnings from the digital health companies we've been in as well. Um, for my part, is at Quartet, early days at City Block, and then uh, early days at Brightline as well. So you know, there's there's so much that we've seen in the space in terms of you know what works and how do you really innovate care delivery models. Very cool. Yeah, great great group of uh, companies you, that you were both associated with. Um, no Headspace Health, well, um, as well as Brightline. Uh, we just had Naomi. Um, Alan on the podcast yes. as part of the Lavongo Digital Health Mafia, oh, yes. which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so l let's go into just give us give us an overview, uh, a brief overview of Arise for those yeah. who haven't heard of uh, of what you're building. And, yeah. um, and then I have a couple of things I want to go into with you. Of course. I mean, really what we are building is at the intersection of community care and clinical care. And um, we're really taking together those pieces because when we look at serving diverse populations, that community care piece of it is oftentimes missing from treatment and really enables um, a lot of um, healing in community that um, typically, you know, is not accessible, not a part of these comprehensive models. And so we wanted to really pull that in early um, to be able to reach and, and bring people in who have been less likely to be recognized as having eating disorders and certainly less likely to get care. Um, and then from a, a clinical model perspective, it is about you know, bringing together that community side and also um, taking a person-centered approach to the clinical model. Um, that is because everyone's experiences with eating disorders are very, very different. There's a very high prevalence of trauma and PTSD that happens with eating disorders. Basically, everybody has a comorbid behavioral health condition, whether it's anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, uh, substance use disorder, certainly. Um, and then there's medical conditions that interplay here, too. So you think of like the interplay between chronic conditions like diabetes or asthma. Um, these, you know, certainly can be exacerbated when you're dealing with an eating disorder and, and vice versa. And so we wanted to really take a holistic approach to the care um, and, and be able to tailor the care for each person to all of those factors. So what's happened in their past, what's happening in life today, what are all those comorbidities we just chatted about, um, and be able to actually deliver care that's meaningfully going to work for them. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of care today has been very episodic. And that's where you see oftentimes people are um, not getting quite sufficient care and not really digging under into the underlying conditions. Um, and so we want to really be able to look at the full picture and deliver care that meets those needs. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, we can kind of go back and forth with this this next question uh, between the two of you, however way you'd like to, to do it. Um, 
I also, by the way, I'm finding it's really hard to not slur your words when you're only on a couple hours sleep. I, like I'm trying really hard. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. Um, and only one cup of coffee too. Wild. Ooh, so I still have the, I still have the energy for that. I was so excited to do this. Um, let's, let's talk through, uh, why virtual care makes sense for eating disorders. Yeah, I think the reality is right now, care is incredibly expensive. Eating disorder treatment for just one course of care is typically $80,000 for um, the, the higher levels of care. And there is unfortunately a really high rate of relapse um, among among that model of treatment. Um, so that the total course of care to actually getting any healing is about $250,000. exorbitant. And a lot of times people don't have insurance coverage. And it means a lot of people aren't actually getting care. Um, and so we, we do believe that there is a lot of opportunity to actually um, reduce the cost by making care virtual and providing that option, but even more importantly, give folks a more private and flexible option to support their healing. Um, like I kind of mentioned in my story, having to actually go to that physical location and sit in a room with all of my peers was such a barrier to actually wanting to come back to get care. And it felt like it felt like every time I went there, it was a reminder that something was wrong with me. Um, and, and I had to go to a hospital for all of this. And um, the ability to actually have this virtual setting where I can be in the comfort of my home and have the flexibility to jump in between a, a work meeting or in between podcasts and a meeting um, is, is just so unbelievably um, more accessible than the in-person model. Um, so so absolutely, I think really centering the member's experience, it's, it's critical. Yeah. And I mean, this resonates so much for me for, you know, when I was deep in my eating disorder uh, in my 20s, I was working in high growth digital health startups and, you know, showing up every day, putting on my best face and and um, so focused on how I was showing up in that in that way. And, um, you know, when I go home, I'm like deeply suffering with this eating disorder and suicidal thoughts. And, um, you know, I, that was one of the barriers. I didn't want to take time off from my career. I was on this path. I didn't want to take the time off. And, um, and that continues to be a barrier for folks. And it's not just, of course, those who are, um, you know, whether it's work, being in community, being in school, like there's so many different ways that it removes people typically from their lives. And we want to really be able to keep people integrated into their lives because that's so a part of the healing is being able to get this care while you're still in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and so it's not just about like, yeah, we can use virtual care to expand access uh, from a geographical perspective. It meaningfully means we can reach populations who wouldn't be likely to get care for all these other reasons. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to see like the emergence of like dietitians in the in the virtual care space and to see how much like that type of specialty has has grown within healthcare. Um I'm really excited to see how, you know, in your space particular uh particularly um how, how things continue to grow, but then also just in the virtual care space in general, right? It's so cool that like each niche, that's that's where you're, you're really starting to see the big growth, not, not necessarily just the one that does everything too, right? Um, can we talk about in this model, why is community so important? Yeah, I think, um, as we said before, when you are really aiming to serve diverse populations and folks who hold marginalized identities who have been historically underserved, um, 
a lot of the healing happens in community and, you know, that community can be defined in a lot of different ways for people. Um, but it's been that you have to try and find that on your own. It's very disjointed from care. And we have seen in other, in other parallels, like substance use disorder, for example, that peer support and group support really makes a meaningful difference in terms of engagement, keeping people in the programs that they are moving forward in in their healing journey, and also that it makes a difference in how the experience is for them and ultimately drives better clinical outcomes. So when we think about our model and how do we deliver better outcomes for folks um, across all the, all the intersect of what, what plays into eating disorders, um, that community piece we believe is going to be really, really integral to the engagement, the experience and driving towards those better outcomes. Um, and I think, I mean, Joan, you, you've lived a lot of this too, um, with your own healing journey and community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our mission is to empower long-term healing from eating disorders and disordered eating. And that empowering long-term is really important because long-term, you know, it, first of all, our, our the model for payment for a lot of these services are incredibly pricey. I think I was I was talking to someone, and, and you know, it's oftentimes two hundred, three hundred dollars per session if you're in outpatient care, um, and that's that's just not affordable. I mean, even even as someone with with the privileges I do, I'm not going to pay that that much for for services, and if I have to pay that for you know every single session for years after years, like that that just decreases the amount of hope that I have for, for healing and recovery. And so we ne- we necessarily need to turn to community and, and be able to heal within the context of community. Uh, I think the other really important piece is Amanda and I, and our, the first thing we really did was start to talk to other patients because again, we have our own lived ex- experience, but it's so important that we go beyond our own stories um, and, and talk to folks who have had even less privilege and, and have been more oppressed by the system. Um, and from what we were hearing, vast majority of folks had never even tried to seek clinical care. They knew already there was a, a distrust of the clinical care systems, but then even more so, they, they just knew that they wouldn't have access. They wouldn't be able to actually get that care. And so the, the real problem for a lot of these communities who haven't been represented in the eating disorder space isn't so much, you know, it, it is that they don't have a place to go, but they haven't even taken that first step to actually seek care. And so we really need to think about how do we actually develop a care model that better fits into their life, that understands all of the different nuances that they're going through, the, the you know, housing insecurity, the food insecurity that plays into the eating disorder that is systemically rooted in in you know, causing their eating disorder. And so that piece is so important. And we believe that um, we have to work within the context of community to actually meaningfully improve outcomes for this, these communities. Yeah. And then just to add one other thing, because this is a conversation about digital health too, scalability. You know, we know there are therapist shortages. We know that this is a real challenge for digital health companies right now. And when you're building a workforce alongside, you know, the the clinical team members that you have care providers who are non-clinical, that's much more scalable. Um, so you look at folks, you know, who have done incredible work and impactful work in community-based settings, in trauma-informed care, in peer recovery models and coaching models. Like, these are the folks that, um, you know, really can be impactful when they're working with folks who are experiencing um, eating disorders alongside these other challenges. And, and we can really scale that that workforce. And, um, and you know, when you think about lower acuity needs too, like maybe for folks over time, um, just that kind of community care is going to be what they need. And maybe they don't need those higher levels of care with clinical services. Yeah, it's, thank you both for sharing your, your different perspectives on that. That was super helpful. Um, last thing, 60 seconds. What are you excited about? What's next? 
Oh, we are in such a big moment right now. Um, we are about to go launch um, a beta program in a week and a half that is going to welcome in our first members on the community care side of things, um, really to demonstrate all that we've been talking about with the impact um, that community care can have. And then in October, we are um, aiming to launch our first state with the full model and clinical services. So we're at this moment in time where we've brought on this truly incredible team of folks who've been doing work in this space um, and who hold all these different perspectives and, and uh, backgrounds and experiences and are now carrying that forward into how we're going to be bringing a rise uh, to the people, if you will. So super excited for this space. Thank you both so much again for, for being on the uh, another episode of Slice of Healthcare. We'll have to have you come back on. Um, and we'll uh, we'll do this all again, but we'll we'll do some panels, we'll do do some other topics. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.